0: Uh, If you would, join me back in Matthew chapter 5, all right, Matthew 5, and we'll be reading a couple of verses. I'm not going to have you um, jumping around a lot today. Uh, We will begin in Matthew 5, as you see from your handout. Today is actually part two of this particular message That was begun a couple of weeks ago because I was out of town on vacation last week. And um, so thank you to Brandon uh, for preaching last week and covering that and all of you that were here as well. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to read these two verses and then we're going to do a little bit of an introduction, a little bit of a review, not that much, but a little bit of a review from where we were and then hit into today's uh, portion of text so we started back in Matthew uh, months ago, back on probably early January, and we covered the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the birth of Christ. Uh, we talked about the wise men and how Joseph and Mary and Jesus went down into Egypt and came back. And then we had this ministry of John the Baptist. That we were reviewing. Look at all that we've covered. Ministry of John the Baptist. He baptizes Jesus. Jesus goes out and he's tempted by Satan, conquers that, and wins the victory. And then Christ begins a ministry, particularly up in Galilee, and He's healing, and He's speaking, and then we get to chapter 5, and we have this thing that we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's chapters 5, 6, and 7, and I've been preaching in Matthew 5 longer than I've ever preached in any chapter of the Bible, and we're still not done. We have a little ways to go. Uh, We had these things called the Beatitudes, spent one week each on those. We talked about how Christ says that we Christians are salt and light, and then we hit this section. I'm not going to read it again today. But Jesus says that I've not come. So no matter what you hear, I've not come to destroy, to abolish the law. He, like no one else, and a lot of people teach on the law, the Old Testament law, no one could say that all of the law spoke about them and that they are the ones who fulfilled the law. So Christ is God. And that puts him in a unique position to comment correct ideas that we have And to clarify the meaning of the law. And he does this in six, he pulls out six areas. Because Christ has said, because the law will be fulfilled, do not weaken it. Okay, do not lessen the teaching of the the, the scriptures, the Old Testament law. And he picked out five areas that they had weakened, their teaching had weakened the teaching of the law. So he pulls out these two quotes. You've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But he, th- he goes on and he says, you think as long as you don't commit murder that you're keeping the law. But I say, so here's Christ who is God, the one who fulfills the law. I say, don't even have anger. Don't insult people with contempt. And he goes on and says, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. And people of that time thought, well, as long as I don't commit the act of adultery, I'm not committing adultery. Christ says, but I say, if you look on another person with lustful intent, you're committing adultery in your heart. And so now he's kicking it up. And then he comes to verse 31. Look at our springboard text this morning. It has to do with divorce. Here's what they were, had been hearing. By the way, verse 31 is not a direct quote of the Old Testament. It's what was being said. In fact, you'll not find this in the Old Testament this way. Jesus says, it was also said, and the idea here, you've been hearing it said whoever divorces his wife let him give her a certificate of divorce so this is the word on the street in Jesus day if someone divorces then at least do her the consideration of granting her a certificate of divorcement that way make it official don't just abandon her over there with, with no means, at least let her be released to go back to her husband or, in some people's interpretation, to get remarried. And if you're going to do that, you should probably return the dowry. That would have been the belief of the day. This is what you've been hearing. Watch what Jesus says. But I say to you that everyone... Now, remember, because we're going to hear a little additional version of this in a moment. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, so there's this exception clause, but I'm going to back up and read it without the exception clause now that we have read it with. So except on the ground of sexual immorality, there's the exception. Back up to verse 32 again. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. You've heard this, but I say... That when you divorce your wife, you're making her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There's a presumption here that she's going to go get remarried. She, they didn't have means. Typically women didn't work back then. And they didn't have a welfare system that would automatically take care of this woman. And so she's probably going to have to go get remarried. You're making her commit adultery and the guy that marries her commit adultery. Now there is this exception and it will be in another passage in a moment. So two weeks ago, we started a message on what Jesus says about divorce, and as has been said recently on Wednesday nights, I love preaching expositionally as you go through the scripture. One of the things about expositional preaching is you never know where a text is going to take you. You never know. I had this wild imagination a few weeks ago when I saw these two verses that I was going to spend one week on this, right? Right? And if you were here two weeks ago, you're like, man, there was a lot in that message that, Jesus, that Jeff hit. Yeah, there was a lot, and we didn't even get to what Jesus taught. Remember that? And so I had these grand ideas when I left for vacation that day. Boy, when I come back, we'll give them part two, and that'll be that. Yeah, I was wrong. Today is part two. I'm 99% of part three. So I think next week we will cover part three. I, I honestly believe that will be the last. Uh, I went Thursday morning, I was looking at like 15, 16 pages of note. Mike Barrow was in my office. We were talking, and I, I think as we were talking, it, it, it kind of settled in my heart. Jeff split this thing. If you knew how much I deleted, and if you knew how much I'm going to have to delete before now and next Sunday. Uh, I cannot cover it all in one, and I couldn't cover it all in two. And as I've said then, so I'm going to now repeat a few things. I know that this is right up there with the sovereignty of God and salvation as the most emotional things that I've ever preached on. I remember two weeks ago saying something to the effect, there's all types of people in the church who have been divorced. Many of them were divorced before they were even a Christian. Some were divorced when they weren't really following the Lord, though saved but not really following the Lord. Some divorced because of some bad spiritual advice. Others were divorced, though they begged and pleaded not to be divorced. They really tried to work it out. And now here you are sitting here this morning and you're following the Lord fully. And what a great song. What a great song. Great is thy faithfulness. Pardon for sin and strength for today. Bright hope for tomorrow and thy hope. That is the predominant thought of two weeks ago, today, and even again next week. But listen to me. This is not only an emotional topic. This is a very controversial subject. Very controversial. Um, I taught Christian school Bible classes for 21 years. I've been preaching longer than that. So before that and since that. I can't think of anything that is more difficult for me to interpret the meaning of a text. I'm telling you right now that the reason that it's going to take me two more weeks is because I'm going to have to offer you, I'm going to do something I don't like doing. So today when we finish the message, it's going to kind of be abrupt. It's going to be very unusual. It's not going to be a come-forward invitation. Uh, We're probably not even going to have a song at the end. It's going to be very weird and awkward. I'm going in telling you that. And I'm going to be throwing out two or three ways of interpreting, and the reason I will be throwing them out is because each of the three ways that I'm going to propose to you could be the way to interpret Matthew 19, where we're going to go in a few minutes. And so I have what I think is the one I believe, but I'm offering you two others that very well may be true. And I don't like doing that. I want to get up and say, so two weeks ago, I could very confidently say, I believe this is what the Bible and I felt very confident about that. Today, there's going to be portions where, ah, this might be true. And I might not even be believing it in my own heart. But it might be true, and that's why I'm telling it to you. And so I'm going to ask for your patience in that. Very quickly, can we review? So two weeks ago, we looked at three things. If you weren't here, if you did not hear that, not because of who's preaching it, but you need to go to the website, listen to part number one. If you only hear today, you're only going to hear a third of a message. If you only heard there and today and miss next week, you're only going to hear two thirds of a message. But if you need to go to graceviewchurch.com and listen to part one that was preached two weeks ago. You may really need to do that. I'm gonna give a quick review. Here we go. Three things we looked at. Number one, you ready? We learned from the Bible that marriage is a covenant. It is not a contract. Number two, we learned that our marriages, husbands and wives, based on Ephesians 5, Paul says that our marriages, I'm going to show you a mystery, our marriages refer to Christ and the church. So our earthly marriages are supposed to be many little pictures of our permanent, hear what I'm saying, our permanent relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. When he gave me eternal life in 1979, he promised never to leave me, never to forsake me, and it is not based on how well I keep up my end of the agreement. This is a covenant. And so in a contract, if someone breaks their end of the contract, you get out of a contract. In a covenant, it is not riding on what they do. I will hold up my end of the the covenant no matter what they do. There's a big difference in that. Second thing we looked at was what does God say about divorce through Moses? And so I'm not going to do it. I fought the temptation. I don't have time to do it today, but I want to encourage you, go back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, because this is the big text that everyone who draws a lot of conclusion about what is allowable in divorce, they usually run very quickly to Deuteronomy 24. I read that 15 times. I've read it a couple more times this week. I'm telling you, I challenge you, Go read it over and over, and here's what you will find. The big divorce text does not call for divorce, it does not command divorce, it does not even condone divorce. All it does, I challenge you, go read it. It's telling a story. It's just describing a divorce. It's dealing with a divorce situation. This man divorced this woman. She goes and gets remarried. The second husband also divorces her or he dies. The point of the whole text is she is not to get remarried. It's all about don't get remarried. It's not even rules about divorce. All there is, this little thing, is this first husband found some indecency in this woman and so he divorced her and then the story goes. But it never tells us what was the indecency and it's not even saying that it was Approvable why he divorced. So you need to read that. Third thing we looked at was what God said about divorce through Paul. So God spoke through Moses before what we just read. God spoke through Paul after what we just read. And in Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians 7 we learned two things. This is the last review. Here we go. Death breaks the marriage bond. You can get remarried. To a believer, Christian. Christian can get remarried after death. Your spouse dies. It's broken. You can get remarried. The second thing we learned was. That if a Christian is married to an unbeliever. However that happened. Maybe you were unsaved when you got married. And you got saved and they didn't. You stay married to them. Or maybe you were a Christian and you went against what the Bible teaches us and you married an unsaved person. Well, don't later on come around and like, yeah, I made a big mistake. I went against what the Bible says and so now I need to get out of that. Paul's very clear. No, you stay in that marriage. The only other thing that breaks the marriage vow according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 is if the unbeliever wants out of the marriage, then the believer can't stop them and so they divorce them. They, this, the believer is divorced. And so Paul says the bond is broken. Now there's debate about is that Christian who was abandoned by an unbeliever, is that Christian just free from that marriage to be single or are they free from that bondage to be remarried? There's big debate over that, good people on both sides. But what we have is death breaks the marriage bond and an unbeliever leaving a believer. But a believer stays in the marriage as long as it's up to them. And so with that as the backdrop, Three things I want us to notice this morning. The first, I'm not even going to give you a text. I just want to speak practically for just a moment. I want to offer to you, number one, divorce doesn't keep its promise. Divorce doesn't keep its promise. Can I go ahead and confess this week and next week, you guys may disagree with me on some things rightly. You may correctly disagree. I may say something that's just, you know what? I may offer something, like I don't think that's it. And you may be right. But can we agree on this, guys? That the divorce rate in the United States is out of control. It is out of control. There were divorces before 1969, but I think this year marks the 50th anniversary of when it didn't have to be for adultery. You could have these other reasons. And ever since 1969, this floodgate has been opened. And I'm telling you, there's so much devastation. I think a whole movement, a whole field of employment has grown out of all the damage that has happened to people because of divorces not only the ones who are in the divorces but their children it's just devastation after devastation and psychologists and psychiatrists are having to deal with all these problems and it's just getting bigger and bigger it's way out of control so look at the point that you just wrote down divorce doesn't keep its promise you can almost look at that two ways number one When a person divorces their spouse, they are breaking the marriage covenant. They stood at an altar and said, till death do us part. And now they're giving that person divorce papers. And that is breaking a covenant vow. And so divorce doesn't keep its promise. But I'm going to give you my real idea here. It's not just the person who does the divorcing that is breaking their promise. My main thought is, if you, you remember in English, in grammar, you could in literature, you can personify something. If, do, if divorce is given a voice, like it's a person, divorce so often whispers in people's ear, I'm going to solve the problems. Pick me and I'll fix it. And divorce tells a lie. It is not telling the truth. It doesn't fix the problem. And so what you have is over and over, and by the way, I'm not coming down. As I confessed last week, it's only by God's grace that I have not been part of a divorce. I didn't even confess. There's no guarantees. I I pray by God's grace that never happens. There's no guarantees any of us are above that. Things, Things can happen, and we make wrong choices. So often people exit their marriage and they really don't truly think through all the deep ramifications and all the destruction and devastation that's going to do to people around them. Now I know by saying that many people are like that's the reason I did divorce is because of so much destruction was happening to people around me. But most of the time what happens here is a person's like I'm not happy and I'm choosing my happiness even though I know it's going to hurt them and it might even help th- hurt them that are under me but I just I can't deal with it anymore and I just need out of this and they choose personal comfort now here's what's maybe most disturbing unfortunately the divorce rate among christians is about the same rate as among unbelievers that astounds me i don't know how to explain that i think maybe one reason is there are people who claim to be christians who are not and they're driving that rate up and they're skewing the results but i also think that there's a lot of christians who were way too quick to jump out of what's supposed to be a picture of of a forever permanent relationship with Christ that's supposed to be pictured in a relationship with their spouse through good times and bad, and they're quick to jump out of that and give up that opportunity to show a reflection of grace and of forbearance. And so they get out of that, and they break that picture. Guys, I'm not being mean. Far too many people stand at an altar, and what we say is something like this. I'll give myself to be faithful to you and to you only in sickness and in health for richer, we like richer or for poorer for better or for worse until death do us part I give myself to be faithful to you and to you only in sickness and in health For richer, for poorer, for better, or for worse. Unfortunately, here's what most people, and they wouldn't even know it at the moment, what they really mean is, I give myself to you and to you only for richer and for health and for better. But somewhere hidden, there's this idea, but if our portion is poverty, and we can't pay the bills, if our portion is sickness or disease or an accident or if our portion is not better but for worse and it's getting worse and worse and it looks better somewhere else, then I might get out. That's unfortunately what a lot of people mean. That's what they don't keep. Divorce doesn't keep its promise. John Piper writes the following. This is an amazing quote. I'm picking a couple and putting it together. I've never lived this, but I bet you it is true. And some here sitting this morning or others listening online or in the future would say that is absolutely true, what he says. Quote, divorce is painful. This is astounding. He writes, it is often more emotionally wrenching than the death of a spouse. Like, it tears them up more than, could you imagine the spouse dies? You love a spouse and they die. How long that takes to get over it. They say that divorce is worse going through than that. Wow. He continues. The sense of failure and guilt and fear can torture the soul. I thought about those last three words, torture the soul. Guys, can I just, I've not lived this, but some of you have. I know, here's what I know. Soul torture is extremely painful. I think more painful than physical pain. Soul pain really does hurt. He continues. He says, a sense of a devastating future can be all-consuming. Courtroom controversy compounds the personal misery. And that's all just one part of it. This is just what they're going through. Now he kicks it up. He says, and then there's often the agonizing place of children. Parents hope against hope that the scars will not cripple them or ruin their own marriages someday. How many times has this been said, honey, don't do what we did. And I wonder if the child would respond, but you did. Don't do what we did, but you did. So why should I not? Just don't do what what your mama and I did. Don't don't do what what your father and I did, but you did. Why shouldn't I? And then he gets very realistic. Piper writes, tension over custody and financial support deepen the wounds. I think of that word again. Not lived it, but tension over custody. I'm thinking of weekdays, weekends. Drop off at school, pick up at school. School year, summertime, holidays, vacations. I hear the words financial support. Hey, I'm going to need some more money. I'm giving you all I can. You're late. Hey, I'm doing the best I can. You know, I've got my own other family that I'm starting. Well, we need more. Are you spending it on what I taught, what you're supposed to be spending? You better not be spending it. I'm like, it's like, what's going on? Hey, I'll fix your problems. Pick me. Divorce lies. It's such a liar. He says, and then there's the awkward and artificial visitation rights. can lengthen the tragedy for decades. Jill Briscoe writes the following, and I want to propose this attitude to our people. You say, Jeff, what if in my past I've already listened where you're at right now and where I'm at right now, what if we were like Jill Briscoe's parents? She writes the following: quote: My sister and I knew that mom and dad enjoyed being married, would stay married, and hoped we'd do the same. Differences they had, whole oh, time out. They had differences? <laughs> yeah. She says, differences they had were kept between them and worked out in the context of the promises they made to each other and to God on their wedding day. What a sentence. Differences they had kept between them worked out in the context of the promises they made to each other and to God on their wedding day. She writes, there was no option out. Then she says, as someone has said, when the doors on a marriage are shut and bolted and fire breaks out. What? When the doors on a marriage are shut and bolted and fire breaks out. She says, all your time and energy goes to putting out the flames. Y'all know that if a fire, a really devastating fire broke out in here this morning, y'all know what we would do, right? You're like, yeah, I'm out. I'm going to the nursery, I'm grabbing my kid, and I'm out, and I'm gonna help some elderly person, but we're gone, Woohoo! we're out of here. If this room were a marriage, that's what a lot of people do because almost every marriage has these fires that break out. Unfortunately, there's this mentality with many, and many kind of, some even go into it thinking, I'll give it a shot. If that's your attitude, Save it. Don't try marriage. Don't do it. A lot of young people today and millennials are not trying marriage. They're cohabitating. That's their new solution. So the divorce rate has actually gone down a little bit, and that's because the ones who normally probably would be divorcing and try this, try that, try that, they're like, yeah, we're not even going to try marriage. And so marriage has been diminished even more. It's really pathetic. When you stood at an altar or single people standing here right now, if you are thinking about going into a marriage covenant, when you do that, what will be your mentality? It's about the approach. Her parents had an approach. We don't have a little side door. Even if it's a, it's a little side door just in case or a little escape hatch. It's over under the rug, and if things get really bad, I'll pull back the rug, and there's this, and I'm going to go out that. No. Her pa- door shut and bolted. We got all this mess. Well, I guess we better work on it then because we're in it. What a great attitude. Number two, let's get back into the Word of God. As we look at our second point this morning, Jesus defends the permanence of marriage. Would you join me in Matthew 19? So as I've said, the bad news for our progress through the book of Matthew is that I'm taking three weeks on two verses in Matthew 5. The good news is I'm going to redeem myself. We're going to cover 12 verses today and next week, and so we're actually getting ahead. So when we get to Matthew 19, I'm going to just skip, I think, Lord willing, we're going to skip right over these first 12 verses and move right on down to verse number 13. So I'm kind of, it ain't as bad as it sounds. Like, man, three weeks on two verses. We're never going to get through it. Hang with me. Here we go, all right? Jesus defends the permanence of marriage. This is going to be our text this week and next. And almost what was said in chapter 5 is almost repeated very similarly, at least here in Matthew 19. So here's the classic passage, if you were to ask me. Here we go. Let me read it, and then we'll make some comments. No real great outline of this section. We're just going to make some running commentary. And then today we'll finish with some ideas about verse 9, because verse 9 seems to cause a lot of questions. Matthew 19, verse number 1. God's Word says the following. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, Oh, I want to go back and give you the background, but we're not going to do that. We're going to stay on track. He went away from Galilee. Okay, okay, he's been up in Galilee for two and a half years. He's been ministering mainly in Galilee. Now he's on his way to the cross. And if you'll remember on your map, so you have Galilee, you have Samaria, and then you have Judea, and Jerusalem is down in Judea. And so what we're getting ready to read is Jesus and his disciples are going to go over into this area called Perea on the other side of the Jordan River, and then they'll come over very near Jericho, and they'll make their way to Jerusalem where he knows, and he's going to be telling them that he's going to face a cross. Back to verse 1 again. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So he's on the other side of the Jordan. Why? It was common for Jews to escape Samaria. And we'll kind of go around that usually. Verse 2. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Everything's very normal so far, right? He's got a, he's got a following. Uh, he's got a name. He's in a new area, but they've heard about him apparently from Galilee. Maybe some folks are following him down to the Passover. Hey, Jesus is going to the Passover. He's going a little bit of a long way. He's taking his time, but we're going to go as he goes, and he's healing people. Verse 3, here we go. I'll try to read through it with not too much commentary, but I will make a little here and there. Verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking. Tested by asking. Is it lawful? to divorce one's wife for any cause? Guys, there's really two questions in one. They mean it as one. Uh, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife is really the core of it. But in their version, it goes like this. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? This is not what they mean. They don't mean, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? Is there any cause whatsoever? That's not what they're saying. Here's what they mean. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any old cause, for just any cause? Is that possible? And they want him to give a yes or no answer. He answered, Have you not read? Is it lawful to divorce your wife for any cause, any old cause, just any cause? Have you not read? Come on, guys, have you not read? Look at verse 4. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male, Adam out of the dust of the ground, made them male and female? So female came out of Adam's side, so God creates Adam out of the dust, breathes, breathes in him the breath of life. He becomes a living soul, takes Eve out of his side, and so God created one man, one woman. He didn't like create some men and some women, and y'all have some marriages, and kind of mix it up when you get bored. God does not do it this way, and Jesus is very clear. Have you not read? He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, so now we're jumped to chapter 2 of Genesis, therefore, because she's out of his side, equal with him, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. We looked at this two weeks ago. Hold fast means cleave, be glued to, be cemented together, be epoxied together, not to be under, what if this, nope, got me. I'm gonna leave you, nope, sorry, I'm going with you. Verse, five, verse five, five again. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two, here's Jesus says, the two, he's quoting Genesis, shall become one flesh. So verse six, Jesus is gonna make a comment and a command, here's his comment. So he's been talking about Genesis. Here comes Jesus making his comment. So, they are no longer two. They're no longer two. You're asking me about divorce. They're no longer two. They're one flesh. Now here comes his command. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You want to know what I have to say about it? You ask me a question? Don't separate. That's my answer. They're not planning on this. Verse number seven. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Why did Moses command this, us to divorce? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart. Guys, I don't think it means the other person's hardness of heart. It means these men that were divorcing because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And as he's done back in Matthew 5, in these other six areas, here comes Christ again. He who fulfills the law, who is the son of God, God himself, is going to clarify the whole thing for us. I say to you, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, Commits adultery. Did you catch that? That sounds like chapter 5. In chapter 5, if this man divorces his wife, then he's making her commit adultery when she marries another man. And the man that marries her, he's committing adultery. And now Jesus is saying, in this setting, it's two different times. Now he's saying, if you divorce your wife, when you get remarried, you're committing adultery. And I think by implication, what he would also, though it's not spelled out, it's pretty clear, the woman who marries you is now entering into adultery. Now verse 10. Verse 10 is a different setting. Apparently, I'm I'm going to assume this is a few minutes later. Maybe a few seconds later, but the Pharisees are gone because this is the disciples said to him. Can I add what I think might have been their look? Lord, what was that? What in the world did you just? What? It's such is the case of a man with his wife. But you just told me, if that's the way it is, then it's better not to get married. Can I just interject a little translation, a little Bartlettism? It's as though Jesus is like, Did I stutter? What are you missing? Lord, you're not gonna you're not gonna correct? No. We don't need to bring them back and you like to say, hey, what you, you mistook, what I- No. So verse 10 again, the disciple, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying. That's what you just said. Not everybody can do that. What is that? Be single. But only those to whom it is given. Singleness is a gift. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. Some are born eunuchs, unable to carry out marital functions. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. To be blunt, they've been castrated. That happens. And there are eunuchs, probably not literal here. This is probably a personal vow that a person takes. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So some stay stay, stay single. Some are born unable to really carry out marital functions. Some have had something done to them surgically to where they cannot carry out marital functions, so they're not going to be getting married. So again, you got these three types. The end of the verse, let the one who's able to receive this receive it. So yeah, if you need to be single, be single. But, But what about what you... Everything else I said about this is true. Any more questions? We don't like it. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's what I have to say. Verse number three. Let's make a few comments here. Let's go quickly. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause, any old cause? You see the word tested? You know what that means? They're asking questions, but they really don't want to learn anything. Have you ever watched our Senate do these uh, committee hearings? You ever watched it? They're asking these questions, but they really don't want to learn anything. Both sides do it, by the way. The Democrats will do it against their opposition. and the Repu- They've really gotten good at it. Republicans do the same thing. Uh, yes or no, isn't it true that you once said blah, 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 blah. Well, actually, well, no, 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 yes or no? Yes. No. Isn't it also true that back in 2007, December, such and such, you sent an email that said yes or no, that you sent an email, really what was going on? Uh, 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 yes or no, did you? Yes my Case closed I'll give the rest of my time to them See they said what I said You you don't really want to know what I have to say They're coming up to Christ In essence what they're saying Yes or no Which school are you in You know good and well Jesus There's these two ideas Some people think you can only get a divorce If adultery has happened That was one of the views in their day But there's this bigger view More people like this version That you can get a divorce from your wife For a lot of reasons Which one are you in Are you in that you can get a divorce For almost any cause group Jesus does not give, yes or no. So you have this weird note in your handout. i got to apologize. It was late Thursday night when I'm doing this, and most of you are going to be like, that is the corniest note I think Jeff's ever put in there. I'm going to offer you what I believe Jesus is doing in verse number 4. Okay, subtly... Maybe not so subtly. I think this is what he's answering. So they want to know, is it lawful? So here we are, Graceview, studying this issue. We want to know it's 2019. We have issues. We want to know what the Bible says. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And we could go further and say, for any cause? We already know the answer to that. Jesus is not going to go for the any cause issue. But can a man and when can a person divorce his wife? I believe what Jesus answers pretty much is summarized like this. It goes like this. I see you boys like Deuteronomy. You boys love you some Deuteronomy, don't you? I am not pitting Bible against Bible. Deuteronomy is the word of God. But Deuteronomy is the law, guys. You know what law does? Law manages sin. And what Christ is trying to get across is, do you want to manage sin or do you want what I want? I don't want sin. So you're asking me about Deuteronomy. You love you some Deuteronomy. Do you not read Genesis? Do you not read Genesis? Guys, I think here's what he's saying. Stop fixating. Well, we do this a lot today. Stop fixating on what Deuteronomy allows. I know that you care a lot about what God. Does God allow this? Does God allow that? Stop caring so much about what God allows. Don't you want to know what God wants? Do you want to know what God wants? Do you want to know what is the right thing or just what's the allowed thing? Where are you at? You love Deuteronomy, have you skipped Genesis? I want to talk about Genesis. And so Jesus focuses on Christ. You say allowed, right, expected, what God wants, it's all the same. So for years, guys, listen, I used to do this. uh, I used to teach these Bible classes, but I would also teach PE classes. And so every nine months, every nine weeks, I'm sorry, I would have to give these tests. So Dr. Wilkins wanted me to come up with a grade, and I need to come up with something more than participation grade. And are they present? Did they dress out? Okay, you've got to come up with something else. So he wanted me to do a written test on some sport, something that had to do with that. And then I would do typically these three physical tests, and we would exercise during the nine weeks. And then I'd give them a test, and I would scale it down, and I had my little system. So they would do sit-ups, and they would do running, and they would do push-ups. This one would usually irk me, so follow me. Each nine weeks, and they would grow by five each time. And so I would have have the guys, they would know, hey guys, tomorrow, it's exam week, don't forget, y'all can play a little pickup ball over there, but I need everybody to kind of one by one, keep me a little line over here, you're gonna do push-up tests, I'm gonna hit the clock, and you're gonna have 60 seconds, let's just take that version of it, you're gonna have 60 seconds to do 60 push-ups. Each push-up counts as one point. What I'm telling them is, you get a 40 for laying on the floor. Okay, so if you don't do one push-up, you made a 40. You do one push-up, you made a 41. Okay, so you got to get to 60. This bugged me. So they're over there playing ball, and their heart's over there, and they don't really care about their grades like they, could, like they should. And so I finally, go, all right, you're next. Come on. Can I do- No, can't they go? No, come on. Let's get it over with. And they get down on the floor. I'll be right back, guys. Hold my spot. All right. And then, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. How, how many are we doing? 60. Man, you don't listen. 60. All right. Oh, whoa, 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 stop, stop. What do you got to do to get a 70? Like, what? See, at our school, 70 was the D minus. D-. 69 was failing. That question always irked me because, one, your math skills stink. <laughs> Number two, and I've seen this over and over. I've seen guys doing this, like literally this fast. One, two, three, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, and then their knees goes down and they get up and I'm like, what, what do you do? What did you just do? What did you just do? Like, I got, my, I got my 30. You gave me 40 for laying down, I got my 30, I got my 70. Like, you know I cannot give you, oh, you could have done so much better. Yeah, but I got what was allowed. 70's allowed. But that's not what was right. That's not what was possible. Three or four in this room who actually used to do those tests. I see you smiling over there, Tyler. You've done that before. He didn't do that, but he's taken that test. Look at verse 5. And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. Do you know that Jesus quotes Genesis using language about relationships that are not used for any other human relationships? Listen to me. There's father and there's mother. And there's sons and daughters. And you've got father and son, father and daughter, mother and son, mother and daughter. You have brother and sister. We love our parents. We love our kids. We love our brother and sisters. We usually hate them when we're younger, but we hit a certain age we kind of mature. And we're like, man, we love them now. So we love parents. We love children. We love brother and sister. But Jesus is very, very clear. Listen, marriage, the husband and wife thing, predates all of those and outranks all of those. Man, you're going to leave your father and your mother. When you get married, you're going to leave mom and dad. And if you don't, that might be part of the problem that's going on in the marriage. Ma'am, you're going to leave your parents, and you're going. This new relationship outranks all of the others, far and away. I think what Christ is saying here, my message, my answer to your question is you are one flesh. God's unique math. We talked about it two weeks ago. One plus one is one, never to be two again. That's my answer to the question. And now they're frustrated. You didn't answer our question. We asked about divorce. You took off into Genesis. Christ is saying, that's my answer to your question. But now, ha, it's going a little different than we thought, but it's going to be what we want anyway. We were trying to trip him up, get him to choose one of the camps of theology so that he would offend the other group, but he didn't do that, so here's what we've found now. We've got something even better. You've just gone against Moses. Why did Moses command us to give... A writing of a certificate of divorce. Why did Moses command us to divorce our wives and send them away? Did you catch that? Did you catch how Jesus responded? So verse number seven. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Why did Moses command us to divorce? Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. This is important. Write this down. There's a difference between a command and a concession. Big difference. There's a difference between a law and an allowance. They want to know what the law... Well, Moses gave us a law. No, he didn't. I challenge you again. Go back and read Deuteronomy 24. There is no command. There is no call for divorce. All Christ is saying here, he lets you. And by the way, let's be honest. Those who are super conservative, and that's where I would fall. We have to acknowledge Jesus is saying... So though it's confusing, in the Old Testament, here's Jesus giving commentary. He's saying the law did allow. So we can't deny that. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. And he's not saying, oh, that Moses, it's God through Moses allowed that. But notice how he words it. It's because of your hardness of heart. Very clear. You're hard-hearted when you divorce. You're hard-hearted. That's a big thing. Uh Oh, wait, we've got to put that in the ledger as we're studying. Jesus says, even when it's allowed, it's because we're hard-hearted. R.T. France really helps here. Really get this. France writes the following. Quote, Jewish teaching, which took Deuteronomy 24 as the basis of For its teaching on divorce was starting in the wrong place. That's what Jesus is trying to show them. You're asking about divorce. Why are you in Deuteronomy? Because we're asking about divorce. You're in the wrong place. He continues that Jesus' point is this. Watch. Those who start from Genesis 1 and 2 will see, hear me, any separation of what God has joined together as always an evil. You're starting in Deuteronomy. Start in Genesis, and what you'll see is any separation is always an evil. Now, Francis, is honest here. He writes, Circumstances may prove it to be the lesser evil. You've got to hang with me. Circumstances may prove that it, divorce, is the lesser evil, but that can never make it less than an infringement on the primary purpose of God for marriage. So if you start from Genesis, you've got to acknowledge any. No matter what the conditions... It's still an evil thing that is happening. It may be the lesser of the evil, but it's still going against God's original intention. So to be clear, I'm going to make a couple of quick points. We're going to go into our third and final point this morning, but I need to make two more points. Here we go. Jesus is saying, God's law allowed for divorce, but only because you're hard-hearted. Again, you're hard-hearted when you divorce. Can I make a conclusion? I'm getting ready to make some folks upset. And my goal is not to make anybody upset. But I got to share what I honestly believe. I'm not firm on everything that I'm saying today. I really think this is true, what I'm about to say. Even when allowed, God does not lead to divorce. Catch that. Go home and study this. Even when allowed, God does not lead. Jeff, what are you saying? I feel like the Lord is leading me to divorce. I might be wrong, but I respectfully disagree. No, God's not leading you to divorce. No, I'm I'm, I'm confident. God led me. I know God led me. My advice to you would be is if you think that was God, you may want to reevaluate. You say, Jeffrey, then what was it? That's you. That's you. Hold on. Let me be clear. It may be allowed. It may be allowed in the Scriptures. Right, then the Lord is leading. No, the Lord may allow. The Lord is not calling. The Lord is not saying, they did that, divorce them. He may allow you, but He's not calling and commanding it. Last thought before our third point comes out of verse 9 because the third point is going to spring from verse 9. And I'm also going to make some upset, but I've got to be honest Here we go. Look at verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Here it is. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery except for sexual immorality. So here I go. If anything is clear, we take what God says to Paul. Death breaks the marriage covenant. And when an unbeliever divorces a believer, it's broken the marriage covenant. We can debate about it. A Christian can remarry. Different issue. There's death. There's abandonment, abandonment by an unsafe partner. And then there's this. This is it. Sexual immorality. We are going to look at and we can debate and disagree and agree on what sexual immorality means. But at the end of the day, two weeks ago I said, we've got more passages to look at. I'm now out of passages. There are no more passages to look at. We can look at this more, but my summary, one of my summaries in the middle of the sermon is this. There's death, there's the abandonment by the unsaved, and then there's something that deals with sexual immorality. Those are the causes for divorce. And you're like, right, and a lot more things. No, I started a little mini, mini, mini list that I'm telling you could grow to 50 with just a little thought. I wrote it this morning. But Jeff, I'm unhappy. Or Jeff, whoa, whoa, whoa. Both of us are extremely unhappy. I'm telling you, I'm sorry. I am really sorry. That is not grounds for biblical divorce. Or, Jeff, dude, she spends the money faster than I can make it. It isn't even about, I make a good salary. It's No matter how much I make, she, she spends it faster. Man, I'm sorry. That is not biblical grounds. Maybe it's this. He ref- Jeff, he refuses to keep a job. All the pressure's falling on me. He gets something and he's always finding these reasons. And it's just pressure. I am sorry. I'm sorry that's happening to you. But I cannot find that in the scripture. I'm, I've run out of passages. Here's one She is so verbally abusive if you knew. Or he is so verbally abusive if you just knew. I'm sorry. And then there's this huge gorilla right over there. And it asks this question. But hold on, Jeff. What if she is absolutely the meanest woman in Anderson County? I mean, what if you, like, you know how he does his hair? There's a reason. There's huge scar gashes, multiple. She has hit him, thrown stuff, cracked stuff. The kids know, Mom's mean as a snake to Daddy. Because I know when I say that, we automatically think guys are the only one, Or, Jeff, he comes home in these drunken rages. He's a big, strong guy, right? He's a big, tough guy. So what does he do? He's going to beat up the women in the, in the house. He's going to beat up the kids because he's a big, strong guy, right? God, deal with them. You deal with them. Jeff, that's the out. God understands. We, we get a divorce in that situation. We can set up an appointment and talk, but at the end of the day, guys, I cannot... Biblically say that's a grounds for divorce. So Jeff, you're telling us that she's supposed to stay and take her licks? No, I do not. I do not say that. Then what would you say? I would say you get out of that situation. If my family member comes home with a big pump knot and a black eye wearing glasses and a hunk of hair pulled out for the third time, I'm probably going to go have a talk with him and I might have to get forgiveness later. But I cannot biblically say Get divorced. God put up with Israel's junk for a long time and right now Israel and God are in a time of separation. And when they're ready to come back, then God will take them back. But there is this time of separation. No, you don't stay and take your licks and you get the kids out of harm's way. But I can't say divorce. I'm sorry for all the ramifications of that. It is really, really tough. And I'm not joking when I say this. It may come to this. God, I'm releasing him to you. And God, if you kill him, that's okay. I ain't joking. God, that'd be okay. Because I'm tired of this, and I want to be married to somebody that loves me and doesn't do that. Then maybe God needs to take them out. And God will take them out, maybe. No guarantees. Don't hire Guido to work on their breaks. Don't do that. That would be wrong. Number three. I, actually, I need to give you two things. Jesus is calling us to avoid two separate failures. What are the two failures? They're separate. Breaking the one flesh covenant union. Don't break the one flesh covenant union. That's what Christ is calling us to. And then the other is separate. Okay, what if someone breaks the covenant union? The second is adultery by remarrying after a wrong divorce. Adultery by remarrying after a wrong divorce. You see the one? The one broke the covenant union. Why? Stay in there. The other, not only did I break the covenant union, but I've added to it by committing adultery by remarrying because the first divorce was wrong divorce. That now takes us to point number three, which we'll spill over into next week. Two views, two views of Jesus' exception clause in verse nine. Can we look at two of those? Next week will be the third, but today will be two of those. So here's where we're going to run. coming down the home stretch, You ready? All right, Jeff. So there is this verse 9. When is it acceptable? Do y'all know that in Jesus' day there were these commonly held views? This was the commonly held view. It was the most popular. It's really where the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus. Are you in for this any cause, any old cause, just any cause group? Are you in the strict group? Because in Christ's day, many people concluded because Deuteronomy 24 left this very open-ended, God doesn't define this indecency the husband found in the wife. And so the rabbis started filling in the blanks. Let's tell you what the indecency is. Don't, we don't have liberty to do that. And so they came up with this list of things. And it varied by rabbis. Some were more strict and some were less and less and less. The list could include anything. If she causes him public shame, you can divorce her. If she talks bad about his parents, you can divorce her. If she gives him private disappointment, he can divorce her. If she does not accept his control as the man in the house, he can divorce her. If she lets her hair down in public, your hair's down. He can divorce her. If she talks to another man in public, he can divorce her. Or, on the most liberal, if he finds someone else more attractive that will have him, then he can divorce the first. What did you notice about that list? It's all slanted, right? He gets to, he gets to, if she, literally in their culture, I'm not saying it's biblical, I'm saying in their culture, the women could not divorce, the men could. The Romans would allow women to divorce and then you find later on in the New Testament this language and I think that's what Paul does even in 1 Corinthians 7. He talks about the wives separating from the husband but the husbands divorcing the wives and so kind of coming a little middle ground. But in their culture, sorry ladies, you didn't even have any rights in this and it was all geared toward the men and that's well, they just kind of drew their conclusions adding to the word of God. So here's our question I'm going to finish with today. Jeff, this verse number 9, a lot of people see a backdoor out of marriage, and it's a pretty good-sized back door. What does Jesus mean in verse number 9? Look at it again. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality. So today I want to offer you two common ideas. Not common. The first is common. The second may be a little less. You ready? Here we go. What does this mean? Some propose that it means sexual unfaithfulness after marriage. And y'all are reading that going, uh, yeah, duh, uh, okay. That's some people's view. Sexual unfaithfulness after marriage. By the way, if I took a poll, right now, most of you, being conservative Bible believers, you fall in that first category right there. You say, Jeff, what does that mean? It's pretty much something like this. Most conservative Christians believe that if anything is grounds for divorce, then it has to be an act of adultery. That's grounds for divorce. An act of adultery, I mean, they broke their vows. They went against, exactly. They've invaded the marriage. They brought another person in. They've broken the trust. The damage is so deep, it's probably irreparable damage. Based off of verse number nine, except for sexual immorality, if they do that, any other divorces, if they marry another, they commit adultery. But this seems to be the exception. And so sexual unfaithfulness after marriage, that that has to be it. It, It's kind of under the, because it's so damaging It's the one strike rule. You you blow this one, they've got grounds. And that's where most of you would fall. That's not where I fall, but that's where many conservative Christians. It's not where you fall, Jeff. Where do you fall? Why don't you fall on that? I need to explain next week. Number two. It's going to sound a lot alike, but the first word's the key. First word's the key. Here we go. Repeated sexual unfaithfulness. I'm gonna to offer to you that this is a much stronger position than the first one. So why is repeated, why do some people believe that what Jesus is talking about here, except for sexual immorality, that does allow for legitimate allowed biblical divorce. Approved, not commanded or called for, but approved. Why why is this word repeated important? Listen carefully. I know I've talked a lot. This group, by and large, at least tries to acknowledge that Jesus uses two different words. I'm going to tell you right now, I would not have to wrestle with this text nearly so much if Jesus had just done what you heard in your head when I read it. You know what you heard in your head when I read it, most of you? Here's what we hear. Here's what, look at verse 9. Here's what we hear. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for adultery and marries another commits adultery. That's what we hear. That's not what Jesus said. And so this group says, wait a minute, oh, time out. Why does he say fornication, pornea? Why did Jesus say pornea instead of machia? What's going on there? And so some, very simply like, unfaithfulness, adultery, they can get out of it. Jesus doesn't say that adultery is a reason for divorce. He says sexual immorality. So this group, and I'm, I'm picking one because he's one that I've read after, and if y'all have been here very long at all, you know I have the utmost respect for this person. He's a great Bible teacher, great expositor. He's forgotten more about the Bible than I will ever know. And so MacArthur is of the group who believes there's a reason that the word sexual immorality is used is because it's something different than a single act of adultery. It's the reason Jesus used sexual immorality. It's not a single act of adultery he writes the following here we go his opinion that i'm offering you today is quote it means extreme situations of unrelenting and unrepentant sexual sin unrelenting and unrepentant when this sexual sin is found out there's no real sorrow there may not even be an apology There may even be justifying, kind of going to some of the other reasons that the Jewish rabbis taught why men could divorce their wives. She shamed me, or she disappoints me in private, or this or that or the other. That's why I'm able to, you'll hear crazy stuff, and it's just unrepentant. Never, I'm sorry, no brokenness, but then there's also this other And maybe they are broken for a little while. Or maybe they pretend to be broken in crocodile tears. But time, give it a little time and what do you find? They go back to the sin and they go back to the sin. And a few months goes by or a few years goes by. And they do it again and again and again and again. And what MacArthur is offering is that right there, that nonsense, that sexual immorality, that's grounds for divorce. He writes the following. God graciously permits the innocent party to be free from bondage to such an evil partner. And with that comes freedom to marry a believer. That's what he's offering us. And people in this group may even cite... God put up with unfaithful, repeatedly unfaithful Israel for a long, long time, and then finally God has now withdrawn from Israel herself. And so there's a precedent for this. And so this group would say it wasn't one time, but it was on and on and on. But hear what I'm about to say MacArthur, even there, he still offers the following divorce was never commanded, even for adultery, it was the last resort to be used only when unrepentant immorality had exhausted the patience of the innocent spouse. And the guilty one would not be restored. They just, they just won't. What's he to do? I love him and you. Hogwash. But I really... Or what's, what's she to do? I love you. I come home every night. What does it matter to you if I, when I'm out of town on a business trip, I can't... No! wrong sin sin stop humanly speaking you're lucky they didn't leave you we better be glad we don't live in the Old Testament time because the Old Testament tells us God's feeling on the matter because he had stoning capital punishment the death penalty God hates adultery running rampant in our country it's out of control and so one of the possible ways of looking at verse number nine why does he use these two terms Sexual immorality is this unrelenting, unrepenting. I'm almost done. I told you we will end abruptly in just a moment. But I'm puzzled by this, and it didn't really hit me this way until this week, and I probably can't verbalize it properly. Hold on. Jesus is saying that God allows for divorce, and yet the Old Testament calls for the death penalty. Jesus is allowing for divorce instead of the death penalty. Why is he doing that? Is he going against? And all I conclude, I'm going to offer it to you, is the reason Jesus allows for divorce, when the Old Testament calls for the death penalty, is because God can show mercy to whoever he wants to show mercy. And so God, if if Jesus comes along and says, Hey, you've heard, but I say. But Jesus, why are you even offering divorce? It should be... That's true, but I say, and by the way, they were already having divorces, and so we don't even read in the Old Testament any example where the death penalty was carried out. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but Jesus is offering divorce, finishing with his thought. So MacArthur is going to offer that in this unrelenting, unrepenting view, that this innocent one can get not only divorced, but they can get remarried. Why would he say that? He offers the following. This is interesting. He writes, quote, the purpose of permitting divorce is to show mercy to the sinning spouse, not to condemn the innocent one to a lifetime of singleness and loneliness that would not be required if the Lord had the sinning partner executed. Did you catch that? He's offering the purpose of permitting divorce in the first place is to show mercy to the sinning spouse, not to condemn the innocent one to a lifetime of singleness and loneliness that would not be required if the Lord had the sinning partner executed. In other words, great, they get to live. I have to now live in loneliness and emptiness and struggle through life because you decided to be gracious to them, he offers, should his grace to the sinner penalize the innocent? And he says the Lord allows divorce in order that the adulterer might have opportunity to repent, if not now, hopefully later, rather than being put to death. If that's what's going on, then his summation here, is, his offering is, this qualification, this accept for immorality, clearly permits the innocent partner who then goes on and marries another person to do so without committing adultery. When they get, Because that person did that, God could have killed them, but he didn't. If they lived in Old Testament time, then they are, death has now separated them. I can go get remarried. But God's letting them live mercifully, and so he's allowing this person to get remarried without it being adultery. And that's a second view. Is that your view, Jeff? That's a second view. That may be true. Those of you who have been here three years are like, I don't think Jeff's ever done this. I've never done what I'm doing. I just preached two points, maybe. Next week I'm going to offer you where I am right now. I'll give you my best shot at it. Can I leave you with three quick questions? I'm going to pray and we'll go home. Three questions. Think about this. Question number one. You listening? Why didn't Mark and Luke, who wrote some verses about what Jesus said about divorce, why didn't they put the exception clause in? Mark was written before Matthew. It's going around. People are reading it. It doesn't even have the exception clause. You divorce your wives and remarry, you're committing adultery. That's all they heard. Why only Matthew? That's question number one. Question number two. Got to ask this. You need to think about Why does Jesus use this word fornication, pornea, sexual immorality, and not adultery? Why didn't he just say, but if adultery takes place and then you get remarried, then it's adultery. Why does he use this other word? What's going on there? Third question, just before we pray does the two views that I just offered you match the reaction of the disciples? Lord, if the case is a man with a woman, what you just described, it's better not to get married. They're acting like something new, astoundingly new is being offered. What is it? When these two views are basically the strict view of the Shammai rabbi group. Right, adultery is the only thing. Hillel's group, Rabbi Hillel, all those other reasons, we know Jesus is not in that group, so this puts Jesus in this Shemai group. Does it? If so, is that, does that warrant the reaction of the disciples? They act like something very strict has just been said. Father, would you grant us your grace? Lord, we need help to understand what your word says. But Lord, I'm going to ask you right now, not just on this issue, on all of life, let us be a people that want what you want, that want what is right, and what is possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, don't let us be a people that goes through life Always seeking selfishly what's allowed. Lord, I pray for enlightenment as to what your word means. And when it's difficult, let us acknowledge that it's difficult. And then, Lord, give us wisdom. We've looked at a couple that are very close, but a little different. They very well may be what your your son is teaching in this passage. And so, Lord... I pray that you would never even let us have to get near that. Lord, let us be true to our vows. Let us be found faithful. And Lord, where unfaithfulness has occurred, I pray that true repentance, God, would occur. And if that has not to this date been clarified, may it be clarified. Lord, may mercy be sought from the partner. And Lord, I pray for guidance, even as we come back to this same passage next week. Lord, let, let the marriages of Graceview and the future marriages of Graceview be a good example of Christ and the church, where it's just a covenant vow that no matter what, we're going to be faithful. And Lord, we fail to love and we fail to respect, we just do. So Lord, we need forbearance and grace and mercy. Let us be that kind of people that send that kind of message. God. My last prayer before we leave. If there's somebody here this morning that's not even a Christian, and they know it, this is so foreign to them, God, though not even a salvation message, God, I pray that you would work in their heart by the power of the Holy Spirit to convict them of their sins and to show them they can never be good enough. They've already broken your law. They can never be good enough to go to heaven. They are standing in the way of judgment. But Lord, put someone in their path to show them that you still love us so much you come after us even though we were sinners. And you met our great need by giving us a loving Savior that was enough, sufficient to pay for all of our sins on a cross. And then God, give that counselor, that soul winner, wisdom to show them That you give away salvation for free if they'll believe your word. They'll put their faith in Jesus. Don't try to help save themselves. Just acknowledge their sin and receive your forgiveness because you can't lie. And because his death was enough for us. We celebrate that today. In Christ's name, amen.